You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning, Citizens Church. For those who don't know much about me, I just want to give a really brief introduction. So about four and a half years ago, my wife Natalie and I actually started coming here to Citizens and became members. Uh, For those who have been here that long, that was back when we used to meet in Eastport Elementary School. Every morning, rain or shine, snow, heat, humidity, cold, freezing, we would have to go out to the trailer, grab a whole bunch of metal stuff that was heavy, bring it inside, and set up every week. So I am very grateful that we have this nice building where we don't have to do that anymore. Uh, (laughs) The last two and a half years, I've also been in the elder training program, as Taylor's mentioned, and that's really been an excellent chance for me to get an inside look at what it is like to be an elder, to shepherd the flock, to come alongside of people, and it's really pushed me to tremendous growth, both in my own personal faith and in knowing how the elders operate. You may also know my daughter Zoe, who likes to run around before and after service with her hair kind of flying everywhere, acting like she owns this building. Or my son Josh, who's when he's not drooling and moaning, likes to spend the rest of his time spitting directly onto my mouth on my birthday. So that was a (laughs) great birthday gift to me. But that's enough about me. Uh, Now let's get into why we're all here, which is to hear God's word. So you may have just heard, uh, read, that we are in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 today. And if you've been coming here to Citizens, you may be wondering why. We spent the past uh, two to three months in the book of Psalms, going through the Psalms. Well, the short answer is we're in between sermons, so last week was our last week in the Psalms. Next week, we're going to dive into a series on Daniel, which will be exciting, and you should all come for that. Uh, But because we're in between sermons, when Joey asked me to preach, he told me that I could preach on whatever text I wanted. Now, that's kind of a big responsibility. You know, the Bible is huge. There's tons of great texts to preach on. But I almost knew immediately that I wanted to preach on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The reason why is about four years ago... After I became a member, Taylor and I decided to meet together and try to memorize the entire book of Ephesians. Now, we only made it through chapter 2, and at some point, Taylor, we should probably finish what we started. But memorizing this text helped me to really understand for the first time the passion and the truth of the gospel that Paul is presenting here. Since that time, I've been able to repeatedly meditate on this text, which is a great reason to to memorize scripture because you can call it to mind whenever you want. And it still gives me, uh, it still fires me up every time I come to it and read through it. And you can ask Bob about that and how I get really excited and animated at 6.30 in the morning when we talk about Ephesians. So we talk about the gospel a lot here at Citizens. You hear it preached every Sunday from either Joey or Taylor or Aaron. You see as they relate every passage back to it, including passages from the Old Testament. You also see that we talk about it at small group through gospel stories where we share opportunities we've had to share the gospel with those around us. So surprise, today we're going to talk about the gospel. The only difference, outside of the fact that I'm not Joey or Taylor, is that today we're going to go over one of the most explicit expositions of the gospel in all of scripture. Now I've understood the basic gist of the gospel for the majority of my life. I grew up in the church, I came to faith at a relatively young age. But this passage really helped me to understand that the gospel is more than just, we were sinful, Christ died for our sins, that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God. It is that, but it is so much more than that. So, this is a great day for those of you here today who don't believe. This is, today you're going to hear what the core of Christianity is. This gospel is what causes us all to meet together from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life. This is the thing that gets us pumped up and fired up, and you get to hear it. 
This gospel that you're going to hear today is the power to give you life and to save you, so please don't tune it out. For those of you here who do believe, don't tune this out either because you've heard the gospel before and you know it. Be amazed at how incredible the gospel really is and how incredible the change from our state of being dead to being alive. Be led to worship and submit to God with renewed passion just as you did when you first believed. So today as we go through our passage that Paul wrote for us, we're going to see that in order to be saved, we must embrace our hopelessness, we must embrace God's abundant grace, we must embrace the unbelievable change of fortunes that God has brought us on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel and just how amazing and incredible it truly is. Lord, we could never begin to deserve what you've done for us, but in grace you did all these things. You made it, brought us from being dead to alive. You brought us from being slaves to being free servants who bring you glory. We thank you for this, Father. We also thank you for your scripture that illuminates these things to us, that shows us who you really are and reveals yourself to us and shows us your glory. We praise you for your abundant grace, Lord, and we praise you for our unbelievable change of fortunes. We ask that today you would speak to all of our hearts and that you would make them fresh just as when we first believed. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, let's begin. So we're going to start in verses 1, to, 1 through 2 here, and this is going to show us that in order to be saved, we need to embrace our total hopelessness apart from the gospel. So let's read that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So let's pause here and just see that there's a ton to unpack just in this first verse and a half. The first thing I want you to notice here is that all the verbs are in the past tense. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is in the past. The reason this is in the past is Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, which is a church of at least predominantly believers, people who believe this gospel, and therefore he is describing their past state. So believers, let this be an encouragement to you. You no longer are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you no longer walk. This is finished. Christ has broken this power over you. For those of you here who don't believe, you should read this verse in the current tense. You are dead currently in the trespasses and sins in which you currently walk. This is your state apart from Christ, and we're going to see why that's a problem. So the first question we might ask about this passage here is, why does Paul, what does Paul mean when he says dead? And you may look around the room, and certainly there's at least one or two unbelievers here today, and nobody is dead. We're all breathing, right? And certainly, you know, if all Christians were at one point dead in trespasses and sins, and once they once walked before they knew Christ, we're all alive here. Well, the answer is Paul is referring to spiritual death. In order to understand that, we need to look back to two other passages from Scripture. The first is we're going all the way back to creation, to the beginning of Genesis, if you recall, after God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a command that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, you will surely die. So we see that the serpent comes and deceives Eve and Adam, and they do end up eating of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God appears to them in the garden, and he pronounces a judgment on them, which we see in Genesis 3, verses 23 through 24. And let's go ahead and read that and see what that judgment is. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, you may see that death isn't explicitly called out in this passage. But earlier, right, in the creation story, the punishment God promised for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and life was death. 
So therefore, we know that there must be some element of death in this punishment God is doling out because Adam and Eve had broken this commandment and God cannot be a liar. He must be truthful. So there must be some element of death here. So what explicitly is the punishment that's being doled out? It's being exiled from the garden, which if you recall, the gardens where Adam and Eve walked and talked face to face to God. That is where they had an unhindered relationship with him. So therefore, we see that spiritual death is this exile from God's presence. It's being put away from him, from having that, relation, it's being, having that relationship severed. So we see this even more clearly later in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 18, which reads, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now that they here in this passage are the Gentiles, that is, or the, those who don't believe in the gospel that we're talking about. And we see that they are alienated or separated from the life of God because of their unbelief. So we see that all throughout Scripture, spiritual death is separation from God's presence, which is the source of life. So why then does spiritual death matter? Why does it matter to be cut off from a relationship with God? And we could spend an entire sermon or even a sermon series on this question, but the primary reason we're going to talk about today is that God is the creator and giver of life, both physical and spiritual. When he created us, he designed us to need a relationship with him in order to live a thriving life and to be fully human. So then we are, when we are separated from God, when we have that relationship severed, we become something that's less than human. We become incomplete, and we become stuck in this feeling of trying to find something to complete us and never being able to find it. And this is not just a temporary problem for this life. This is an eternal problem. Whether you are a Christian and believe or whether you are a non-believer and don't, you will exist for eternity consciously. And you will, if you are a non-believer, you will exist knowing that that relationship is never available to you for the rest of eternity. Perhaps you know this feeling in this life. Perhaps you've worked to achieve something, whether that be a relationship, a job, a hobby, or whatever it is, and you've succeeded, you've got it, you've attained what you were looking for. Now, for a time, you probably felt some fulfillment, probably felt the sense of accomplishment and pride, But I suspect after time that that sense of accomplishment and pride started to wear off. You started to realize that this thing that you had worked so hard to achieve couldn't actually do what you wanted it to do, which is fill this hole in yourself. The reason why it can never fill that hole is because that hole is left by the absence of an infinite and eternal God. Nothing in creation could ever stand up to fill that hole. And you're now even worse off than you were before because you've tried this one thing that you thought would bring you fulfillment, It didn't work, and now you have one less thing to try. And so you're back to where you started, but with less options going forward. So no matter how well we do, how much money we make, how great a relationship we have, how popular we become, how much authority we attain, we will still be separated from the creator and giver of life. See, no created thing can ever fill the void left by the infinite and almighty God. Without God, we can never become more than subhuman, even though by design we feel called to greatness. A brief illustration of how the separation from God limits our ability actually comes from my day job. So for those of you who don't know, I work at NASA doing something called optical navigation, which is where we essentially take images of bodies in the solar system and use them to figure out where the spacecraft was when it took the picture, very similar to how we use our eyes. Now, there's only maybe 50 to 100 people in the world who do this type of thing that I do, and it requires a ton of software because we have to process, you know, tens of thousands of images, which would be impossible to do by hand. 
The problem is, since there's only 50 to 100 people who do this, it wouldn't be profitable for any company to go and write this custom software that we need. You know, Microsoft isn't going to go and make some optical navigation software that we could just buy because only 50 people are going to buy it. It's not going to be worth their investment. Therefore, in order to do my job, I had to write custom software in order to process these images. And you can, in a sense, say that I am the creator of the software. Now, being its creator, I know exactly how it was created. I know all its strengths and weaknesses. I know it's, how it's knit together. I know how it can be used to do different things. And I, because of that, I can take the software and I can use it in new ways that weren't originally intended to do, quote unquote, great things, things that were beyond what I originally intended it to as its creator. Now, other people at NASA also use the software. Uh, they can use it to do most tasks without having to ask me questions. You know, most typical tasks that the software is designed to do, it's pretty easy for them to just uh, put in the inputs and get out the output. But when something comes along that's outside of the scope of what the software was originally designed to do, they have to come to me as its creator and ask how the software can be manipulated to make it do what they want to do. And this is similar to how it works with God. Right? God created us. He designed us. He knows us precisely inside and out. He knows all of our strengths and weaknesses, and he knows how to push us to greatness, to do things that we could never do apart from him. Now, sure, we can exist apart from God in this life. We can live, we can breathe, right? We can go to work. We can even do semi-great things in a human sense, you know, achieve the miracles of modern medicine or achieve building skyscrapers or these great things. But apart from God, we can never achieve our true greatness, which we see in creation was ultimately to bring glory to him and to be his ambassador for the rest of creation. So, our sin separates us from God, which isn't good. The solution then is to just not be sinful, right? Well, wrong. If you're a Christian, you know that there is no way that we cannot be sinful because we're helplessly sinful. And Paul outlines this in the rest of verses 1 through 3. Let's read them to get again together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so in this passage, Paul shows us how we were slaves of the world when he says that we follow the course of this world. He shows us that we are slaves of Satan when he says we follow the prince of the power of the air. And he shows us how we are slaves to our desires in ourselves when he says that we uh, carry out the desires of our body and our mind. So let's walk through each one of these and see how this unholy trinity of a master completely corrupts us to the point where we have no choice but to succumb to sin. So the first thing Paul says is we follow the course of this world. So everything we experience in this life draws us to a life of sinfulness. Right? You may notice this, even on the radio on the way over here. All of the music we listen to, all the ads we hear, right, they are all filled with all kinds of sin, whether that be sexual immorality, whether that be pride, greed, anger, hatred. And over time, this repeated exposure to these sinful elements causes us to actually think that they're good things. They desensitizes us to them. So we become desensitized to acts of violence, to sexual explicitness to greed, to pride, to envy, and numerous other things because we see it time and time again, and in culture it gets portrayed as good things, actually. And so over time, the world slowly snuffs out what we know to be truly good, which we know from God's natural law, which he's written on our hearts, and that causes us to lose our sense of morality. It loses our, our ability to have a moral basis to understand the world. A great example of how this corruption happens over time actually comes from the Lord of the Rings. 
So if you're familiar with the story, and I'm going to, spoilers here, sorry, this has been out for many, many years, so if you haven't heard it, you're a little late. Um, but so Frodo inherits this ring from his uncle Bilbo, right? And it turns out this ring is a great ring of power, which Sauron, who is kind of this Satan figure in the Lord of the Rings, poured all of his malice, all of his evil, all of his power into this ring. So the only way to rid the world of this evil is for the ring to be destroyed. The only way it can be destroyed is by taking it back to the place where it was created and throw it into a pit of lava and Mount Doom. So Frodo sets out with the intention of destroying the ring. Uh, he carries the ring with him always, though, and occasionally even has to use the ring to escape from enemies because it allows him to become invisible. But over time, that repeated exposure to the ring, that always having it on his person, using it a few times to escape and using its power, begins to desensitize it to him so that he begins to see it as less than evil. And so what happens when he finally makes it to Mount Doom, where the ring can be destroyed, after journeying for months and months, going through incredible hardship, he is supposed to take the ring, throw it into the lava, and destroy it, but he doesn't. Instead, he claims it for himself. And he does this in spite of knowing the fact that the ring is evil. It's only going to hurt him. It's only going to hurt those around him and those he loves. But because he's become so desensitized, he can't help but give in to claiming the ring for himself. And this is the same way things happen with us in sin. Over time, we see repeatedly time and time again this idea of sexual immorality being glorified as something that's fun and something to pursue and something that will bring you fulfillment. And we begin to believe that in our mind despite the fact we know that it's not true. Now, luckily, you know that Frodo, or the ring does end up destroyed if you've read the book, so it doesn't end there. And this may be a slightly cliched example, but I love the Lord of the Rings, and I had to include a reference somewhere to it in the sermon. So, so the second thing Paul shows us is that we are enslaved to Satan, or the prince of the power of the air. And now we know from the rest of Scripture, specifically in 1 Peter, that Satan is crafty. He lurks about like a lion looking for someone to devour. That means that he uses culture, again, to his advantage. He disguises himself in what is acceptable. That means here in America and the West, where things are very secular, he makes a science out of man and science and reasoning. Or he makes a god out of those things, sorry. Then in the East, and where things are still very spiritual, he uses the fact that they worship many gods to make gods out of creation, whether that be the sun, the moon, or some uh, conglomerate of all those things. In both cases, though, what Satan is doing is he is deceiving us to do what he wants us to do. By making a god out of man or by making a god out of the sun or the moon, we lose all claims to a moral basis. Right? How can the sun and moon claim what should be morality? How can mankind claim what should be morality for all of mankind? We have no moral basis to rest on when we take and make something a god that is created. And the third thing is actually kind of a continuation of the last two, is that because of these last two things, we end up carrying out the desires of our body and mind. See, because culture and Satan have completely corrupted our moral basis, we have nothing to fall back on to say this is absolutely good or this is absolutely bad, we say it's all kind of on this continuum, then when we desire something, we pursue it, no matter what the expense is to ourselves or others. So that means we pursue things like sexual relationships, outside of marriage, and then when we have the consequences of those sexual relationships, we pursue murder in the name of choice. Or we pursue security and protection, building things around us, trying to keep others out, to the point of ignoring the hurt and the pain of those around us who are only trying to exist. We, we pursue wealth at the expense of others. You see this time and time again with the CEOs who have billions and billions and billions of dollars. 
We pursue pride at the belittlement of those around us. This is something we're all prone to. We like to puff ourselves up, right? So we think to ourselves, oh yeah, I've done this great thing, or I've got to step over this person in my career, or my sins are less egregious than those persons. So we puff ourselves up, we make ourselves look good, and that causes others around us to experience the hurt as we belittle them. And the final thing, or one final example, is how we pursue food and drink at the expense of our own physical health of our body. Right? Obesity is one of the number one problems in America right now. We eat and eat and eat despite the fact that it's causing our body to break down and cause us discomfort and pain, and ultimately that is a sin against God as well because he gave us our body for his purpose. So in all these things, because we have no moral basis, our desires have become our masters. They control everything we do. When we have a desire, we must pursue it because we have no way to say in our mind, oh, that's not a good thing for me to pursue. Now, perhaps you understand something of the slavery I'm describing here. You know something's morally wrong and will hurt others. You know you should not do it like Frodo claiming the ring for himself. But you do it anyway because it feels good. See, we can never break free from this trifecta of slavery to sinfulness because it's ultimately a heart problem. Even if we miraculously cleaned up our actions, our hearts would still be full of sin because everything would have been done selfishly for our own glory. And Paul lays this out in one of his other letters, Romans 3, 9 through 18. This won't be on the screen behind me, but in that he uses phrases like, no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. So we see here that we are enslaved to our sin, we cannot seek God or do anything that is truly good because no one is righteous. No one seeks God. We have all turned aside. We cannot earn our way into God's favor. And more than this fact that we are slaves, we are also sinful by our very nature. Right? Recall in verse 3, we are described as being, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What does Paul mean by nature? Well, it means that we are born into being children of wrath because we are born into the sins and trespasses of verse 1, by nature of being descendants of Adam. Now, just a brief aside, Paul uses two nearly synonymous words, trespasses and sins here, to show us that we are fully given over to sin. So trespasses we can kind of think of as direct violations against God's commandments. An example here would be how each night when I give Zoe a bath, she has a bucket that has holes in the bottom of it she likes to fill with water. That's great. I you know, encourage her to play in the bath. But inevitably, despite the fact I've told her time and time again, she likes to take that bucket filled with water with holes in the bottom of it and hold it outside the bathtub so the water gets all over the floor. That would be a trespass. Now, the other hand here is sins. And these, are, again, are offenses against God that are not explicitly called out by commandment. An example here might be being a workaholic. Right? We know that work is a good thing from the rest of Scripture. God gave us work to do. But when we elevate work to a position where it causes us to neglect those around us, whether that be our family, our friend, our church, or our own health, then that becomes a problem. That becomes a sinful attitude. Another example would be a few months ago when Natalie was on a restricted diet because Josh couldn't have dairy, and I bought her dairy-free ice cream. After a few weeks, she hadn't finished the dairy-free ice cream. It was still in the freezer, and I thought, oh, I should probably finish this to get rid of it. Should have I known I shouldn't have done that? Probably. Did I do it anyway? Yeah. Was it sinful? Maybe. <laughs> so I think if we are... So yeah, so ultimately these two words stress that by nature we are fully disobedient towards God, both when we are knowingly choose to commit sins or trespasses, and even when we're not. 
And there's even more of a problem here because sin isn't just an offense against God. Sin is an offense against humanity and against society itself. And it's only by the common grace of God that we were able to meet here together as humans, that we are able to live in cities and towns, that we are able to still have society at all, that we haven't devolved completely into warring it constantly with ourselves. And I think if we're all honest, whether you believe or not, we can all admit that everyone is sinful. And one example comes again from my job. When people find out I work at NASA, one of the first questions they ask me is whether the moon landing was fake or not. Now, before you ask, the answer is no, the moon landing wasn't fake. Even if it was, it would be above my pay grade, so I couldn't tell you. But what does this question show? It shows that we have no trust in anything. We have no trust in what anyone tells us, even if we can see those things with our eyes, because there were videos and pictures captured of the moon landing. So we don't trust that humanity can ever tell us the truth. We think that everyone is a liar, and therefore everyone is sinful. So what hope is there then? Really, we're fully enslaved to our sin by our very nature. Our sin separates us from God for eternity. So are we then condemned to live a life of subhuman existence and an eternal life experience the force of God's wrath? Luckily, praise be to God, the answer is no. If we embrace his incredible grace, which he lavishes on us for his glory. Let's jump to verse 4 and read that together. But God, now let me pause here and ask, have there ever been two more impactful words written? Paul just outlined the most hopeless and helpless plight that's ever seen that is the fate of all humanity. Then, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes, But God. Can you imagine the joy on his face as he dictates his letter to his assistant who's who's transcribing it for him? He's saying, We were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. What an incredible change that is, because we could never pay the debt of sin. The debt is our lives. It's both spiritual and physical lives. And so if we do pay it, and everyone will pay it one way or another, believe it or not, there'll be nothing left. We will be dead spiritually and physically. And our eternity will be of suffering and separation from God's presence and help. There is no hope for us in ourselves, but God didn't leave it like that. To display his glory, he made a way where before there was no way. He paid the debt that we could never pay. Now let's continue through verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we were dead because we committed treason against the sovereign ruler of all things. But God, that sovereign ruler, loves us so much that he raised us up from the dead alongside of his son. The debt was our life. It required either us to die or for a perfect substitution without blemish or fault to die in our place. But the problem was that substitution didn't exist because all mankind is sinful. We all have blemish and fault. Therefore, God himself became flesh in the God-man Jesus. He was born of a virgin, and therefore he was without the nature of Adam's original sin in him. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He committed no sins. He committed no trespasses. He was perfectly obedient to God throughout his life. And because of this, and because it showed just how sinful mankind really is, Mankind hated him and condemned him to die by crucifixion. But even in this, the darkest hour of humanity, God was still working. He was in this action pouring out his own wrath on himself, the only one who could take it and survive. We see that Jesus died physically, and he was buried, having paid our debt. But God didn't leave it like that. After three days, he rose again in a new glorified body. And Paul says in this passage that with Christ, we too are resurrected into our new glorified spiritual bodies. 
this is incredible. But I do have to point out at this point that this is not for all of mankind. It is available to all of mankind, but not everyone receives this. The way we receive this is when we have faith in what Christ has done, as Paul shows us in verses 5 and 8 through 9. Let's read those briefly. So verse 5, the subject still is here, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then in verses 8 through 9, we see, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So twice Paul here points out that we are saved by grace. It was purely out of grace that God made us alive in Christ. In verse 8, he then clarifies that the way we receive that grace is through faith in or belief in what Christ has done for us. This is not our own doing. It's not a result of works. We couldn't earn our redemption ever. It had to be given to us freely by the grace of God. Because the problem is we can't do a single good thing. Right? Even the good things we do, even if we miraculously clean up all of our actions to conform to God's moral law, right, we would still have been doing that for ourselves. So it would still have been done out of an act of sinfulness. And this makes perfect sense, because if we could somehow do enough to earn our way back into our relationship with God, that would, in effect, indebt God to us. That would say, okay, God, I've done my part. Now you owe me my salvation. You owe me a relationship with you. But God is the creator of all things. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. He can't be indebted to us, his lowly creation. So if you've been here for any length of time at Citizens, you've seen how this truth is reflected throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. We can't earn our way to God, and for all of time, throughout all of Scripture, the plan has always been for God to come and in grace save us. And even our faith is by the grace of God, as we see in verse 8. By grace, you have been saved through faith. See, the only way we can even have this faith that's required to receive the grace is if God has given us in grace the ability to have that faith. Because apart from God, there's nothing redeeming about us in our sinful nature. And this is where so many other religions and self-help books go wrong. They all teach that in order to make our, we need to make ourselves better and earn our place in standing before God or before the world, if you're talking about a self-help book, we must continue to do so for all time. Now, first of all, that sounds exhausting. Deep down, we know that this is impossible because we know just how sinful we all really are. And so that's why it's incredible that only in biblical Christianity do we see that it's purely by God's grace that mankind is saved. It's not our own doing. We can't even have the faith that is required to receive this grace. Even that is given to us by grace. See, by God, in biblical Christianity, by God's grace alone are we saved. By God's grace alone is our salvation persevered. And therefore, we cannot boast in our works or even in our faith only in the fact that God has made us alive. So now the question is, why would God do this? Why would he pour out his terrible and fierce wrath on himself who was perfect and good and didn't deserve this wrath, so that we, his lowly creation, might have spiritual life. Why would he do this while we were still shouting our defiance at him and can't even meet the most basic requirement of having faith without his help? And the answer is simple, and it's presented in this passage. It's for the weight of his glory. Think back to verses 4 and 7. Right? We see that Paul just says the reason why God did this. It's because he is rich in mercy. It's because he loves us greatly. It's because he wants to use us as examples of his grace and kindness towards us. All of this language points us back to the declaration of who God is at his very core, which he gave to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. That reads, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is how God describes himself. This is the very core of who God is. He is merciful and gracious. He abounds in steadfast love, but he is also just. And we see all of these attributes displayed in the gospel, which is the number one revelation of God's character to us. God saved us because that is who he is. There was nothing worthwhile in us, and we did everything we could to throw away what God has given to us as a free gift. But God maintained faithfulness until the point where he could pour out his wrath on himself, the only one who could withstand that wrath, and restore us to him, perfect and without fault. If you want to know who God is, all you need to do is look to the gospel and look to the cross. There has never been a more incredible turnaround in history. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. And if we only have faith in him, faith which God himself has given us. And all of this is solely because the infinitely worthy one loved us, the finite and unworthy sinners. And amazingly, it doesn't even stop there. You know, that's the, that's the core of the gospel. That's the most important part, but it goes so much more than that. And all we can do is embrace and marvel at the incredible transformation that God has brought us on. Let's continue through verses 6 through 7. But God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were slaves of our sinful desires. We were slaves of Satan. We were slaves of the world. But God raised us up so that we now sit and serve alongside the Son as trophies of his grace. We went from being, we now sit alongside the sun at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and God points to us and says, look, this is the expression of my grace. This is the fullness of who I am. I saved these who didn't deserve to be saved, all for because I am gracious. We went from being despicable slaves to treasured servants who shine in bringing glory to God. And further, in Ephesians 1, Paul lays out how Christ was exalted over all powers and forces. So the fact that we now sit alongside of Christ means that we also have power over these things. They can no longer enslave us. We now are no longer enslaved to Satan. We are over Satan. We now no longer are enslaved to our desires. We are over our desires, and same with the world. And there's more. Let's look at verses 4 and 7. 4 reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and then in verse 7, it reads, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were living under wrath, right? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now we live under God's rich mercy, his great love, his immeasurable grace and kindness. And this is not just for this life. This is for eternity. How much more incredible is that to be under grace and kindness and love rather than under wrath? And there's even more than that. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were less than human. We had become subhuman because our relationship with God had been severed. But God, through Christ, made us a beautiful new creation, fully human, and able to carry out our original call of spreading his glory. Now, to help you understand this, the word Paul uses for workmanship here is the same word where we get a poem or a work of art from. So we went from being a stunted, ugly, corrupted creation without use into something that's beautiful, something that's worthy, something that's purposeful, something that's deserving to be put on display and that's deserving to be used as a useful tool to bring about God's glory. 
So this is the most incredible, mind-blowing change of fortunes that could ever be. No one else, no other religion teaches that God saved humanity all simply because he wanted to. They all teach that humans must endear themselves to God and earn their way into his presence. Biblically, Christianity, though, teaches that God became man in the flesh and he saved us for his own glory. Let's look once more at the whole of this passage and marvel at how beautiful the gospel truly is. We went from being dead in trespasses and sins to being made alive in Christ Jesus. We went from being slaves of the world to Satan and to ourselves to being seated alongside of Christ as trophies of grace. We went from being subhuman, unable to live up to our created purpose, to God recreating us into a new work of art that brings him glory and fulfills our original purpose. And more incredibly, notice how everything in this passage is in the past tense. This is all finished. This is all the work that has been done. We are right now a new creation in Christ Jesus because of what he has done for us. This is the gospel and this is amazing grace, the very center of our great God and Savior. And all we can have to do to receive it is to embrace our helplessness, embrace God's grace, and embrace the incredible transformation that he has brought us on. So what does this mean for us? Hopefully you've seen that this means everything. This is the difference between life and death. For the non-believers who are here today, this is available to you. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to change your life to make yourself presentable for God, before God. All you need to do is embrace the fact that you can't save yourself, but through Christ on the cross, God himself saved you for the weight of his glory. This is a free gift of God. We could never earn it with our effort. To reject this is again akin to rejecting the help of a firefighter when you're stuck in a burning house about to collapse. If you reject it, all you are doing is condemning yourself. Don't delay. There is no more important decision that you can ever make. To the believers in the room, never become bored of this gospel. Never let it not move you to sing lavish songs of praise. Let it always move us to glorify our Creator and Savior with everything we have. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were objects of wrath, but now we're trophies of grace. We were slaves, but now we're invited to the feast. And because of this, we can joyously walk in the good works God created for us. That means we can joyously share our faith for God's glory that others may know the treasure of what we have found. We can care for the poor and the hurting and the needy around us just as God cared for us when we were desperate. We can care about justice. We can care about equality and the sanctity of life as God's image bearers. We can be fully human and bring glory to God through our occupations and achievements rather than bringing glory to ourselves. We can become truly useful works of art and trophies of grace, which bring great honor to God our Father. And none of, us is, none of this is our doing. In grace, God made a way for us to be saved. In grace, God gave us faith. And in grace, God has given us meaningful work for the advancement of the gospel. We do not earn or maintain our salvation. It is all from God. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is incredible. We can't even begin to understand just how incredible it is that we have been brought from being dead to alive, from being made into a new creation who has purpose after being enslaved to the world and to ourselves, Lord. We praise you for this. We praise you for what you have done. And we praise you that even in grace you have given us faith, Lord. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you have made us alive in Christ Jesus. And we praise you for all eternity, Lord. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.